And so he was taking a class. This is a starting quarterback. Now, would, it, you, would people do this today? I, I doubt it, seriously. So the young man was, he didn't go to class and he was warned ahead of time. So, I, and I don't remember how many in summer school, there may have been 15 classes, but he missed about 10 or 11 of them. And so I called him in and I said, and I told him, I said, listen, we've had this discussion. And I said, you're not going to play the first football game. Now go, now think about this today. If you did that to a person because of, of something like this, then there would be a firestorm on social media. But I That's did what I was going to ask. Well, I did what I thought was the right thing to do, because if I didn't, then this is something that would be uh, a negative impact on his life if I didn't do anything. So anyway, to make a long story short, so I told him that, well, his father was furious with me. So he came in and he sat down, the dad and the son, and he went through his diatribe about, well, this is a travesty and you know yada 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 for an extended period of time and I said to him after he was through talking I just kept my mouth shut <laughs> when, he, when he was through talking I said to Mr. I don't want to give his name up Mr. Smith I said what are you going to do when your son leaves here and he gets a job and of the first 15 days of work he misses 10 of them what are you going to do are you going to go in and talk to the manager and tell him you can't fire him or whatever I said, what I'm trying to do is teach this young man that he has a sense of responsibility. And I'm going to teach him a value or something that he can take for the rest of his life. He, he better be, you know, he better be in class because he's not, he's going to fail. But if he doesn't learn this lesson that he gets out in the real world, he's going to be out without a job. Welcome to The Climb. Today, we have the opportunity of speaking with Eric Hyman. He shares his experience growing up all over the world, his early days in college athletics, hiring Gary Patterson, discipline in Genevian Clowney, being around Johnny Manziel, and he talks about where college athletics are today, how he empowered student athletes, and just dealing with the fans and the media and just so much more. Thanks for joining us today. Enjoy the climb. Eric, welcome to The Climb. We appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And this is a this is a fun one for Michael and I in that we have uh, a great relationship with your son, Ryan. He's a partner of one of ours and, and a close and dear friend of ours. So uh, we're looking forward to the conversation. We won't spend too much time talking about Ryan because uh, <laughs> there's probably not enough time here to record all the issues with him. But uh, we appreciate the time and have heard and learned a lot about you. And uh, I think maybe for the audience, just start with, you know, what's the background, kind of where'd you come from? And then, you know, walk us through kind of today and Michael and I'll just bother you and interject with some questions. Sure. Be glad to give you a little bit of a background. You know, obviously, you know, I was in college athletics for 40 some years and as an, as an athletic director for 28 of those 40 some years. But anyway, prior to that, um, I, you know, I lived all over the country. My dad was in the service and I was recruited student athlete out of Northern Virginia and went to the university of North Carolina as a football player and was there until I graduated. And then I started at, um, Furman university and I got my master's degree at one time. I wanted to be a superintendent of school system. So I've got my administrative uh, master's in administrative education. 
And then while there, I coach football and I coach women's basketball with my wife on the college level. And, and so one thing led to another. So I ended up coaching football for nine years, got my degree, and then was a full-time coach. Very fortunate, wonderful experience for me. Then I went into administration. Um, for a couple of years, I worked with the, the individual that was going to be the going to be the one A president of the one A Athletic Directors Association. I worked with him at Furman for two years. He was the AD, and then I became, at the ripe old age of thirty three, an athletic director. And uh, I learned wow. a lot what, what what to do and what not to do. And I mean, that's what that's what I always say to young people: life is full of experiences that successful people learn from them. And so I learned from a lot. I made a lot of mistakes, and I learned from those mistakes. And then I went to uh, NC State and worked there for five years as a number two person, and then AD at Miami of Ohio, and the athletic director at TCU. Which I yeah, I was fortunate to hire Gary Patterson, but I also was fortunate to hire a guy named Jim Schlossnagel. Oh who yeah, was a baseball coach. And um, but anyway, so then I went to. Um, uh, South Carolina was the AD. I was AD at TCU for seven years, South Carolina for seven years. And then I went to A&M and I was the athlete director there for about four years. So that's been my professional path. I've done a lot of things. I've been associated with a lot of people. I've had a wonderful, ex- wonderful life, wonderful professional experience. Has it been easy? No. It's been challenging, obviously, because from a political standpoint and just the the changes that are going on in college athletics, not only when I started, but today. And um, I feel this is probably the most challenging time being an athlete director today because of what's taking place. And so for a certain to a certain extent, I'm glad I'm not the AD anymore. <laughs> I, I, I can sit back and armchair quarterback. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? But anyway, it's it's a it. I feel for the athlete directors today. So anyway, that gives you a little snapshot of my professional career. That's a very Reader's Digest condensed version. And Eric, are you still are you still consulting? Well, I was consulting until COVID, okay. <laughs> and that came to a dead stop. Sure. You know, if if you if you watched if you've seen what's taken place in college athletics and the Obviously, having to deal with the budget issues they're having to deal with is a major, major challenge. And yeah. so there's not a lot of financial flexibility to hire consultants and those kind of things. And, and, and it, you know, being a consultant was very enjoyable. I enjoyed do, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. But then again, I could walk away from a situation. I did this in a couple of places as walk away. And, and it, the problems were somebody else's problems after I was finished. Yeah. I, so in answer to your question, no, that's really backed off an awful lot and rightfully so based on the economic challenges that college athletics are faced with. I want to I want to go back. I do want to come back to some of that stuff. One of the things you had mentioned earlier was, did you say that you coached with your wife? Yeah, it was a really interesting story. When we were, when I was getting my master's at Furman, back in those days, you know, as a GA, you made, I mean, you're going to laugh when I say this, $1,800. And then I was a dean of medical school making $3,600 a year. And that was $5,400. I was felt like I was rich. And my, <laughs> wife, was, my wife was the uh, a college professor. Well, anyway, she had played college basketball and they didn't have uh, a women's basketball. They didn't have any women's sports. So some of the girls came to my wife and asked to, uh, they wanted to start off, start up a team. And she came to me about it and uh, asked me, you know, I played high school basketball and have been involved in coaching and those kind of things. And she asked me if I would, if I would be willing to help her out. And I said, yeah, Yeah. I I will be glad to. And I said, no, we started a team from scratch, but I said, you deal 
when you deal with women, you deal with the socialization, the relationships with people. I'll do the coaching. And so I read Bobby Knight's book, Help Side, Ball Side. And I read Morgan Wooten, who is a very famous basketball coach at DeMatha High School in, in um, Washington, D.C., called The Red Book. And I read those two books. And so we started the team from scratch. And the last year, and this is back in the AAW days, which is before the NCAA days for women's athletics, we went all the way to the Final Four. Oh, my god! I gosh. mean, what they call Wow. Yeah, we finished. Well, the first, the third year into the program, we finished uh, we finished seventh. And it's a little bit different. They brought 16 teams from around the country, and it was in Temple, Texas. And it, it was it was an interesting story where we were to go out. The, there was no money to help. The, the school didn't have money towards women's athletics, so we had to do a lot of the fundraising ourselves. So we, we got, and we ended up, uh, today, we would, it was a lawsuit up one side, down the other, but we drove two station wagons from Greenville, South Carolina to Temple, Texas. That's a long way. And, <laughs> yeah. and we had two station wagons with a full women's basketball team and a manager, and we just packed everybody in. And so we got to the Mississippi River, so one of our players had a panic attack. She didn't want to go over the river, and she was a starter. And I said, I said, Debbie, you're going over the river. I didn't, we didn't work this hard to go this far. And for you to not, and she said, well, I want to go back home. And that was Travis Dress, South Carolina. She said, I want to go. I said, Debbie, you're not going back home. She says, well, I'm going back home. I'm going to walk home if I have to. And here we are at the Mississippi River, hundreds of miles away from Travis Dress. And I said, gosh, almighty, what are we going to do? I'm panicked because not only she, she panicked, but she panicked me. So what we ended up doing, my wife and I got together and we put her down on the floorboard and, and put the winter coats on top of her. And I drove around and drove across the Mississippi River and got to the other side about three or four miles. And I said, all right, Debbie, you can pop your head up and we're over. And so, I mean, you know, you had to improvise. You had to do some some things that uh, I don't know that a lot of athletic directors have experienced something like that. But that was all fun. But we went out there and we competed and, and uh we did well, and then the next year we went all the way to Vincennes, Indiana, and, and, fin and finished third in the country. So, in answer to your question, it was a great experience, and I love doing it. A little different. I don't think many ADs in the country have coached women's basketball on the college level. That was one of the things I was going to ask: is like when you look at the ADs, you know, is the path that you took a very similar path to other ADs, and then also to that, I mean, AD at thirty-three years old seems really young for that role. Got to be a record. Yeah, very, very young. When I was, I didn't know this at the time, but I was extremely naive. And I took the job in December, uh, no, July of 1984. And I found out that the gun was loaded. When I took the job, the gun was loaded. It was pointing at, pointing at the football coach. So I had to, to terminate the football coach at the end of the year. Well, I was hoping he'd have a good year and I didn't have to do that. But anyway, he ended up we had to let him go. So, I mean, you know, it was a challenge. I'd never done anything like this before, 33. And, you know, you had to learn a lot. And to do, to how to handle it, I don't know if you're familiar with Washington and Lee University and, and BMI, they're right next to each other. And so I went into the library of Washington and Lee, and I looked, what do they call it, uh, microfilm, and, and read how Virginia Tech had terminated their football coach a couple of years previously. And then I read of Virginia. I didn't know what I was doing. So I read through and looked at all what the media said and how they handled it and all that kind of stuff, because I could see the handwriting on the wall. And then I had to, to obviously, I had to let them go. So it was, uh, you know, it was a great learning experience for me. 
how, how old was the coach that you had to let go that had the gun? Oh, gosh. At him? He was in his, he was in his sixties. So just talk about, talk about that dynamic for a second. Oh, it was very difficult. And, and he's a nice person and everything. And he's no, I don't think he's alive anymore, but quite frankly, the business VMI was a very difficult job in defense of him. It was a very, very difficult job, but to a certain extent, the profession had passed him by. And um, so it was time, it was a fitting time to go to take the program in a different, in a different direction. But, you know, I've, you know, I made some mistakes when I did it and I learned, learned from some of those mistakes, but it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time for me because that's the first time I'd let somebody go. And I finally learned, I agonized that had a pit in my stomach, but I learned that, that there comes to a point in time that you just, it's in the best interest of the university or the institution where you are, that you need to separate yourself from that individual. And at a young age, you know, I would think about his family, his children, the assistant coach's children, all those kind of things. And I agonized over that. And at times I couldn't sleep at night. But I finally got to a point where in my mind, and this is what I use later on in life, I finally got to the point where this was the right thing to do. And no matter what, even though you have a negative impact on people's lives and families and children, all those kind of things, this is still the right thing to do. And that's why, you know, and then I could live with myself. And then I was at peace with myself. And then obviously we progressed and we had to separate ourselves from the coach. You mentioned that your dad was in the service growing up. I mean, he was a, he was a general, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He was a West Point graduate. My brother played basketball at West Point. Yeah. He was a general officer. And therefore, we traveled every all the time. You know, we traveled every two or three years. They moved us around. So I've lived all over the country, and I lived overseas in Germany. But I've lived all over the United States, and uh, which is which was a good experience. Um, I had a lot more appreciation and maybe awareness of how great the country was when I went to Germany. And we lived in, this is before they put up the wall. I lived over in Berlin when they put up the wall. But those prior to, and you see... Uh, East Germany, and you see some of the communist bloc countries, and you compare them to the West, and then you saw the you begin to hear about people, and I won't name names, but you go back to the Chicago Seven and some of those people about the virtues of communism, and and then you turn around and you go into East Berlin or you go into East Germany, and it's hard to see any virtues of communism, and the West it was so different from the West as opposed to the East in Europe and that made you have a great love and appreciation for this country, which I think a lot of times we take it for granted. How would you say some of those experiences helped like you and your throughout your career? I mean, growing up all over, being all over the place, you know, Germany, I mean, you, you know how to meet people. Yeah. And it, you, you know how to adjust and to adapt and you see things differently. Now, maybe, you know, I was hurt to a certain extent, from a fundamental standpoint, because we move so much and from an educational standpoint, and we might be right in the middle of, of studying geometry and, you know, geometry is in sequential order, and then you may end up moving and you're out of the sequence. So it had a, so, so there was a negative impact about doing it, but you just, you meet people, you know, you know how to meet people and you know how to adjust and to adapt to certain situations. And I mean, where there was one experience that we were leaving West Berlin to go to on vacation in Spain. Well, 
he had to put it back on the right side. This was East Germany, and you couldn't go into East Germany. I mean, you could you could go on the Autobahn, and an American could, but they had a pass while our car broke down, right in the middle of East Germany. And I was only like eight or nine years old at the time, but I thought I was scared to death because I thought that, and there were there were truckloads of of East German soldiers going by on the Autobahn, and we stopped. And what you have to do is you have to give a pass to an American, and they take it to the next checkpoint. And then they have somebody come out and get you. Well, we did that a couple of times. But as a young kid, I thought the communists, I thought they were going to take us. And we were going to end up living in Eastern Europe. I mean, you know, so, I mean, they didn't, but that's what you, that's how you see things. And so you have so much more of an appreciation, like I said, for this country. But that was a worldly experience. And that was, and like they put up the Berlin Wall. When they put, excuse me, the Berlin Wall was up, but what they ended up putting the barricades up and the fences up. Well, I'll never forget it. There was a young East German person in a trench coat. He was probably about 18 or 19 years old. And if you remember Checkpoint Charlie, and right next to Checkpoint Charlie on the East German side, he tried to escape. We got caught up in the barbed wire. And so the East German shot and killed him. And so he was bleeding, uh, a caught entrenched in this barbed wire on top of the wall. And I mean, those kind of experiences you don't get in a normal life like in, in when you're growing up in America in a country in a small town or something like that you see those kind of things that makes you a lot more aware of, of what the real world is like and it was it was so sick to my stomach because like I'll never forget it. it was on the cover of post magazine or life or one of those uh, magazines back then that having this young person like I said dying and the Americans wanted to go over there and take him out of there, take him and get him off and save his life. But the officials would not let him do it because obviously it could cause World War III or whatever. So I don't know if answer your question. I just, you know, my lens is a little bit different than maybe your lens or maybe Mike's lens or whatever. It's because just the experiences that we had growing up. Absolutely. Well, those, those certainly define us. Um, we talk a lot about on this podcast the the separation between your work life and your home life, and sometimes it's hard to make that transition. Did was your I dad failed. <laughs> was your dad more of a general when he got home than he was on the job, or vice versa? And then you're mentioning your own life. I mean, how did you transition between a, an AD and a father? It was very difficult for him, and a lot of you know once the general, always a general. And the pressure that he was under, did he bring some of that home? Yes, he brought some of that home. Did we have to square our meals at dinner, the dinner, dinner table uh, to a certain extent? Do we have to ask, yes, sir, no, sir, pass the potatoes, please, and all those kind of things? Yes. It was a lot different than the way families, the way we brought up our family. So the stru- there's a lot, a lot more structure to it. And you know, he obviously, his job, he wasn't around very much. And he was gone in my senior year in high school. He took a a tour of duty in South Korea, a hardship tour, so I could go to one high school. And so there's, you know, you, you make those kind of adjustments. But going back to my personal situation, I probably failed at that. And uh, my son would probably tell you that also. But anyway, my wife used to say, and my kids would say, we have you physically, but we don't have you mentally. And I would go home after work and I, there were so many things going on. It was a, being an athletic director is a very complex, complicated job. Yeah. And there's a lot of moving parts in it. And it's like a juggler. 
and he's juggling balls. And then sometimes a ball gets bigger and throws you out of rhythm. And you have a certain rhythm in an athletic department, like you do in a corporation. There's a certain rhythm that you have. And that the, the having to terminate a coach or having to deal with a board member, an, a corrupt board member or something like that throws you out of whack. And so what you've got to be able to do is try to maintain that rhythm. And so it's, it's the job was, you know, it's like almost 24 hours a day. And when you're like trying to build a, an addition to a renovation of, of a football stadium of $500 million and you're having 3,000 people at work and all those kind of things, all the way to making sure that your programs stay in compliance, making sure you have a schedule completed, making sure you set goals and you have a strategic plan and how are you going to get there? All those kind of things. And then you have the, then you have all the fans and they, they're at your throat. (laughs) You know, so, so, so those kind of things, it makes it, makes a job very difficult today. And in answer to your question, I wasn't great at it. I'm a lot better in retirement about being, you know, being involved and being more of physically and mentally there, but I'm, I'm not the best person because I didn't do real well. And I think Ryan and my daughter have learned from some of the things I didn't do as well as I should have done. And they do a much better job of raising their children. And they're more attentive than say I was when I was raising my kids. No, I can see that. I mean, I live walking distance from, from Ryan's house and your son is an incredible dad. He does a really, really good job raising those kids. He really does. I'm very proud of him. I think one of the things that you'd mentioned is you talk about some of the hiring and firing and some of the challenge within that, within all these different dynamics. Maybe talk through a little bit of the dynamic of the hiring and firing within an organization. I can only imagine how many different political pieces are pulling you in which directions. And, you know, I'm sure you got some good stories there. Yeah. You know, we'll talk about Gary Patterson since that was mentioned earlier. I had hired a guy by the name of Dennis Franchoni at at, um, TCU and he was there for about two and a half years and then he went to Alabama. Well, we ended up hiring Gary Patterson and um, and I'll tell you a little story about it. So we hired Gary and Gary is a genius. And I think that's, this was 20 years ago before he was hired. He's a genius defensively. And I coached on defense. I played on defense. So I had an immense appreciation for his, his skill, his talents. And another thing Gary did was Gary was great at judging talent. He could see somebody and he could project where they would be two or three or four years down the road. And as a high school senior, as a high school junior, he's phenomenal in that. But, you know, Gary in other areas had uh, you know, he hadn't been really exposed to some of the things that you need to be exposed. He was a defensive coordinator. And it was interesting because I really didn't know Gary that well. But, I, you know, it, and I try to do a lot of research on people before I hire him. And we had a national search. And, and, and one of the people on the search committee, you know, we were looking at a defensive coordinator at another school. And he said, you know, and, and you know, they were very comparable. But the issue was, Gary was a TCU, so there wasn't going to be a learning curve to the extent that maybe you have if you were bringing somebody from the outside in. So anyway, so that he was a little bit controversial as far as the hire is concerned. And you might want to put an exclamation point behind that because Fran was so different and Gary is so different than Fran. 
And we had success under Fran. And so hiring Gary didn't get a lot of traction with a lot of TCU people in the beginning. So the first year, we, I had to make a presentation at halftime. And the first Gary's year, and I think we were playing Northwestern State or something like that, a school that did not have the resources we had. And they had a lot of the players that had transferred there from some larger schools. Well, anyway, they beat us. But at halftime, I went down there to make a presentation, and the fans booed the heck out of me. <laughs> and, and so I went back up to see uh, the uh, associate athletic director for marketing. His name was Kevin O'Connell. I said, Kevin, don't you ever do that again. Don't you send me down. And people were, go- <laughs> were booing me because of the hire. But the anyway, anyway, you know, you look at now from an historical standpoint, Gary's one of the best coaches, been the longest, one of the longest tenured, one of the best coaches in the history of college football. Considering the resources we had at TCU back then, was not at all with the resources they have today. So Gary was able to really put a program on, and it took time to be able to do it. And it's like I said to people at TCU, that Ocean Liner doesn't change directions overnight. And it's taken TCU a while to get where they are. It's going to take them a while to get where we want to go. So you have to have patience, and patience is a great virtue. But the history has shown that Gary was a great hire. Was he a real popular hire in the beginning? He is not as popular back then as he is today. And I really give a tremendous amount of credit to Gary for what he's done at TCU. And he's really put him on the map. And we talk about San Diego and Ladanian Thomason playing out in California. His exposure, Ladanian's exposure in California has done wonders for um, applicants from California coming to TCU because it just oh, puts, yeah. it put TCU on the map. And so TCU is a good school in the Midwestern part of the country in Texas. But other than that, it wasn't real well known. But through the success athletically, there's a good message at TCU, but it, athletics got it out every, every, to every nook and cranny around the country. And so people began to find out about, about TCU. But so going back to your question about hiring, it's probably one of the most difficult parts of the job and hire and fire people. And, and I talked a little bit about terminating people. It's very, very difficult. But you, when I was at peace with myself, I knew it was the right thing to do. I analyzed, overanalyzed it, whether to let somebody go. But to try to hire somebody, I thought it was very important. The three things I looked for was integrity, work ethic, and intelligence. And uh, experience wasn't important, but it wasn't at the top of my list. Where you have a smart person they can make up maybe for a little bit of lack of experience, if that's what you want to be able to say. So you have to do, in my job, you have to do a huge amount of research. I mean, a huge amount of research on people. It's like hiring Jim Schlafnagel, who's a baseball coach at TCU, one of the best baseball coaches in the country. And so I was in a meeting with the AD at Tulane, and Jim was assistant coach at Tulane. And I was a meeting with a Conference USA athletic directors, and, and North Carolina was flirting with the baseball coach at Tulane. And I, I said to uh, the AD, I said, what would you do if he, who would you hire? Because I knew the possibility of having to hire somebody at TCU. I knew it was pretty high on the radar screen. So, so I was keeping my eyes and ears open and asking questions to a lot of people. What well, he said he hired this guy who's his pitching coach named Jim Schlossnagel. The AD's name was Rick Dixon. And so I said, Rick, why? And so he, he told me why. Well, then, obviously, I started to track him in addition to other people. I tracked him, and he went to UNLV. And Mountain West wasn't the best baseball conference in the country. But the first year, he was 500. And the next year, he won the conference. 
which is tremendous compared from where you, yeah. you know, when he took over. So the issue, the issue was that I hired him. So what I'm trying to say to you, you got to keep your eyes and ears open all the time and you got to have a sense of what the marketplace is. And then you got to find out, you know, once you interviewing, interviewing people was about 30%, 70% was checking their backgrounds. And because their actions speak so loud, you can barely hear what they say. Coaches and people are, are salespeople. And so what you got to look, you've got to look through, you got to look in depth and you've got to look down and scroll all the way down that you possibly can and find out as much information. So some of the things that I've done in the past that I probably, as far as compared to people in my profession, I probably did probably one of the individuals that did a, um, maybe did a lot of research on people because I want to make sure what I was getting to, I didn't want to make a mistake, but it's not an exact science. But if you, if you, um, if you hire, if you have more, if you have success, more success than not success in hiring people, then you're going to stay as an AD. You know, yeah. if you don't have <laughs> hiring people, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be on the road. So I, so I don't know if that helps you at all. As sure, far as yeah. the, the biggest, the biggest thing I, is research people, research, 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 and find out about them. Who's the true person? Like I called somebody, a coach in another school, and, and I happen to know the women's tennis coach. So I called her and I asked her, what is this individual like when the lights are turned off? What's the true person? And so, you know, she was going to be upfront with me. She wasn't going to lie to me. She wasn't going to mislead me or anything like that. So that helped me as far as to begin to develop a profile. So, so that's one of the things I've done. Another thing I try to do is I try to bring the, the players of the team in. That's, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I would do is I would, because I would say there's three things I try to do, you know, the, the athlete department, and I got through a little bit of that. We sort of have an idea of what a successful program is. So we try to mirror that to the individual. We also, I also would sit down with the, co- the players on the team and I would say, you're not going to hire the coach and your parents aren't going to hire the coach, but what's important to you? And you help develop a profile from your perspective. So I would sit down and they would help. I did the same thing at TC when I hired Dennis Franchoni. I sat down with the players, the football team, but not all the, I, the leaders of the team. Yeah, right, and, right. And they helped develop a profile. Well, I, that's what I ended up doing. I said, what do you want? And we would help develop a profile. And then a lot of the times I would call the former players in and I'd probably get like 10 of them. And I'd say, what's important to you? You know, you had the history... You know the history and tradition of the program. So what's important to you? What do you want? What do you want in a new baseball coach or football coach or whatever it may be? And they help develop a profile. So based on that, that's what I would try to hire. I try to put a round peg in a round hole. You know, hiring something is not perfect. And you're not going to find the perfect person. But you're going to find somebody that hopefully has got the, most of the characteristics and a match up to what you're trying to accomplish at the institution that you are. With some of these coaches, I mean, you've obviously had a ton of exposure to a ton of different personalities and people. And, and when I think back to like I played college ball at, at Illinois Wesleyan, just D3 football. But these coaches shape a lot of these young people's lives like they're very influential people when you're in a sports program. So as you think maybe over like these, these years of these coaches you've come across, like what are some of the attributes that you see that you're like, man, this, 
this guy or girl were just a phenomenal leader of these these young, you know, moldable minds? Like, what what did you see that was great, or what did you look for when you were looking for those leaders? Well, what I several things I try to do is, you know, the the having coached gave me a little bit of experience. Now, a lot yeah, of, yeah, a lot of ads have never coached before. They never. Oh wow, they, okay. Yeah, they've never coached, and a lot of the my generation had coached. A lot of some of them have coached the next generation or not. You asked about the ads today. You know they're going through fundraising or they're going through compliance or something like that. So I've coached. So I always felt as a coach that coach they make the main thing the main thing. And what's that? It's the student athletes, and the players have to know that you have their best interests at heart. That extremely, extremely important. And, you know, you're there. I mean, you're going to be tough. And if you have to be or do whatever you need to do, but they have to know that you really, it's not how much you know, it's how much you care. And you've got to be able to care for your student athletes. And, you know, that's, that's, that's why we're in this business. And so when you have it, you have an athlete come back to you and tell you, thank you. I mean, you, you couldn't put a million dollars on it when they come back and tell you how much they experience and how much it's helped them develop and grow in life. And, and, and personally, yeah, I made mistakes when I was younger and, and some of the people I was probably too hard on, I was probably too tough on them. But over time I mellowed a little bit and I saw things from a little bit different perspective. It's like one of the players I had, I'll never forget it. I happened to be very vocal. Well, he was a big, tall defensive tackle. He's about six, six, and he was probably about two forty five or whatever. And he came over to me one day and he said, you know, he didn't respond well to being vocal, being really vocal. And I sat and thought about that. And I said, I will, I will make a, I'll make a change and I won't be as vocal because he didn't respond to that as, as I would be to others. But I said, what I will do though, if you screw up, I'm going to come up and whisper in your helmet, in your ear and tell you, get the heck going, you know, or something like that. <laughs> but I, but I will tell you, I will not, I will not do that anymore. So you had to adapt and adjust to some of those. And this is what, to me, this is what coaches, this is why we're in the business is to help these young people and help them develop. And, and uh, I'll give you a great example at an institution, an SEC school, uh, I've been at two of them, but one of them, we had an attendance policy. And so we had the attendance policy and my expectations was for them to go to school because what is the number one determining factor for success in college? What's the number one? SAT, ACT, class rank, where, what, what do you think the number one? The number one thing to be successful in college academically is what? To go to class. That's the, If you don't go to school, you're not going to be successful. To show Michael, up. Michael, that was your problem. Oh, I found that yeah. out the hard well, way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the tests are a whole lot easier if you actually went to the class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some of the football players didn't didn't get, that didn't get traction with them. But anyway, Wiss was a starting quarterback, and so he was taking a class. This is a starting quarterback. Now, would you would people do this today? I doubt it seriously. So the young man was he didn't go to class, and he was warned ahead of time. So I, and I don't remember how many in summer school there may have been fifteen classes, but he missed about ten or eleven of them. And so I called him in and I said, and I told him, I said, listen, we've had this discussion. And I said, you're not going to play the first football game. Now go, now think about this today. If you did that to a person because of, of something like this, 
then there would be a firestorm on social media. But that's I did what I was going to ask. Well, I did what I thought was the right thing to do, because if I didn't, then this is something that would be uh, a negative impact on his life if I didn't do anything. So anyway, to make a long story short, so I told him that, well, his father was furious with me. So he came in and he sat down, the dad and the son, and he went through his diatribe about, you know, this is a travesty and, you know, yada, yada, yada for an extended period of time. And I said to him, after he was through talking, I just kept my mouth shut. When he he was through talking, I said to Mr., I don't want to give his name up, Mr. Smith. I said, what are you going to do when your son leaves here and he gets a job and of the first 15 days of work, he misses 10 of them? What are you going to do? Are you going to go in and talk to the manager and tell him you can't fire him or whatever? I said, what I'm trying to do is teach this young man that he has a sense of responsibility. And I'm going to teach him a value or something that he can take for the rest of his life. He, he better be, you know, he better be in class because he's not, he's going to fail. But if he doesn't learn this lesson that he gets out in the real world, he's going to be out without a job. And so this is what I'm trying to teach him. So what do you try? This is what a coach or an athletic director, I think, tries to do is, you know, tries to work with young people. I, I'll give you, I'll give you a phenomenal example. Jadavian Clowney. You ever heard of Jadavian Clowney? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Jadavian Clowney was a student athlete in South Carolina. Jadavian Clowney was a man among boys as far as an athlete. I mean, he was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And Jadavian Clowney was a freshman, and he wasn't going to class. We had a tennis policy. The reason we had an attendance policy because I wanted him to go to class. Because the number one ter- determining factor for success academically is going to class. And so he didn't go, when I checked, I would check the football, I check all the athletes, but mostly the football and basketball players about every two or three weeks. Well, he wasn't going. Well, I warned him and he still wasn't going. And so I called him into my office and on oh, Sunday morning, I'll never forget it. It was, a t- it was the uh, Clemson game, which is a huge, it's Alabama, Auburn, to the state oh, of South yeah. Clemson and uh, South Carolina is a huge ri- rivalry. And so so I called him into my office, and at 10 o'clock, I'll never forget it, his position coach came, the administrator for football came, the academic person for football came, and I wanted his grandfather to come, but he couldn't come because his grandfather was a stabling factor in his life, Jadavian's life. But Jadavian came, and so we went through, and, we talked, and I said, Jadavian, I said, I had a round desk in my office. I said, in three years, this desk is going to be piled of money that you're going to be able to get because you're going to be make a lot of money in professional football. But I said, what you're doing is that you're taking, you're knocking money off the table. And if you continue like this in three years, there's not going to be any money in the table because you'll flunked out of school. And so, you know, I'm doing this because I'm trying to protect you from yourself. And so anyway, it got out with the, with the fans. I mean, they were not happy campers about doing this to Jadavion. And, and, but the issue was they were so myopic, and I was trying to look at the big, the long term and not the short term. So with Jadavion, I ended up suspending him for part of the Clemson game. And thank goodness we won. Because <laughs> we, 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 I was scared to death. We would lose. And who do you think would get blamed for it? I would be. You know, that's what ADs are good for. They're good to blame on. If the coach is successful, they get the credit. The AD, if they're not, then the AD gets blamed for it. I'm being facetious. But my point is <laughs> that I was very, you know, we won, thank goodness, and we won quite decisively. Well, now we fast forward. So 
I run into Jadavion, and he is in the springtime. He's going into the academic center. He's walking toward the academic center, and I roll my window down, and he's walking. I'm in my car, and I roll my window down, and I said, Jadavion, come here. And he walks over, and I knew what was on his mind. I've got to go see the principal, and I don't want to have to go see the principal. So he walked over, and I said, Jadavion, I'm so proud of you. I knew he was going to class. I said, I'm so proud of you because you're going to class. He had the biggest smile you've ever seen in your life. And I mean, he was so happy, you know, he was rewarded for going to class. And so so now we fast forward. So when I'm at A&M, the Atlanta Falcons and the Texans are practicing with each other. And there's a bunch of players for the Falcons and there's a bunch of players for the Texans that had played at South Carolina or played A&M. So I asked Bob McNair, the owner, I said, do you mind if I come down and watch practice? He said, sure, come on down. So anyway, I came down and I saw a bunch of them and talked to them and that kind of stuff. Well, Jadavion was the last one to come off the practice when practice was over. I said, Jadavion, come here. And I put my hand out. I said, I want my money. (laughs) 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 You know what I'm talking about? Yes, sir. I know what you're talking about. Well, it's funny, but the point, you, you tried to be a leader, it takes courage. And to do the right thing, it takes courage. And even though people were so short-sighted about it, but I understood it, but I took abuse about it. And I did those kind of things in the professional career that I was in because I tried to do what was the right thing to do. So dealing with student-athletes, I mean, I dealt with student-athletes. I love dealing with it. And I'm, you know, and I'm boring you with the stories, but there's a lot of times that that's what we're in the business for. And so you try to help them. And I tell them, I've got, a, I've got erasers on all my pencils. And sometimes when we disciplined a player, I'll never forget, we disciplined a football player, defensive back at, at A&M, because he was doing some things that were inappropriate. And so I called him in and I said, bottom line was, I said, now, if I was a wide receiver, he was a defensive back, and I ran a post pattern on you, and I beat you for a touchdown, I mean, that's going to happen. And, but if you, if it happens like time and time and time again, you, what, what's going to happen? I told, I said, I asked him a question, what's going to happen? He said, well, I'm not going to be on the bench. And I said, that's exactly right. And so that's what I'm trying to teach you is that you've got to learn from your experiences. If you're a defensive back and that guy's beating you on a post pattern all the time, you're not going to be playing. Well, you get out in the real world and you just make these kind of mistakes. You're going to have, you're not going to be successful. So those are kind of things that you try to relate to, to your athletes. I've tried to, to and I mean, I've had this across the board women's soccer. It's not all football and basketball. Uh, you know, it's other sports also that have, have run them up. And like I said, they make mistakes. It's gay, life is not perfect. And so the key is to learn from them is to learn from your mistakes. And that's what I try to do as an athletic director with our student athletes. No, that was great. Well, while, while we're on the topic of, of players, any, um, color you can shed around your your time with johnny football johnny menzel yeah (laughs) that that was johnny was probably the best improviser i've ever seen in my life on a football field he had gifted talents the first year there johnny menzel you know you would see him and he would he's upbeat positive hello mr hyman how are you doing and that kind of stuff i mean a very effervescent personality and johnny is very he's a really smart young man I mean, he's very smart. Maybe some of the things he does don't rank high on the smartness category, but he, he really is. And he, and he, you know, he's a good kid. 
Well, what happened when he won the Heisman, and it would be hard enough, he was like 19 years old at the time, it would be hard enough for a 40-year-old to win the Heisman, much less a 19-year-old kid. And there was a huge transformation with him. And unfortunately, I felt sorry for I really did. I felt sorry for him. The adulation, the visibility, he couldn't go anywhere. And so that, so I was telling you, I didn't qualify by saying I'd be sitting on a plane. We'd be flying someplace the first year. You know, we would be playing LSU or, or Alabama or something like that. And, and that's, he, he would walk down the hall, the walk down the aisle on the plane and say, Hey, Mr. Hyman, Mrs. Hyman, how are you doing? Very, very engaging. Well, the next year I noticed he'd have a hat on, he'd have his headset on, he'd have his head down. And, and I felt for him because of, because of what he had to go through. It was very, very difficult experience for, for him. And I, I mean, I really felt sorry for him because you could, it's just difficult for anybody to deal with that, much less a 19 year old kid. So there was a, there was a change. I mean, there was a transformation in his personality and, and some things like that that took place, but he was a hell of a football player. I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, he willed us in some games. I mean, he absolutely took the team. We played, uh, Duke in the um, Chick-fil-A Bowl. I mean, he willed the team to win. I mean, we played uh, Louisiana Tech in Shreveport one time. I mean, it was um, – he just picked the team up by the bootstraps. I mean, he was a very, very, very talented young man and a smart young man too. I mean, he was gifted. I mean, he was just gifted athletically. So fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was – and he was – I mean, he was a challenge. I'm not going to tell you he wasn't because there were some things that we had to do while he was there, which was very unfortunate. But – He's still the bottom line. The bottom line with him is I feel sorry for what he had to go through and some of the challenges he had because of how successful he was athletically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the personalities of some of these athletes that you have to deal with. I mean, you got some such extremely talented young men and women coming into these programs that, I mean, are going through that. I can't, I can't even imagine. They're all different. Every single one of them different. They all come from different backgrounds. So there's some common themes or some common things that you're trying to help them develop as time goes on. And when you bring them in, they come from all walks of life and there are certain expectations that you have. And we tried to do this. And I think they do it. We try to do some things long before other people were doing them. And we tried to teach them. One of the things we try to teach them how to dress properly. And, and, and we made it mandatory for their junior year. We would, I would bring, um, we would bring somebody in for the male athletes to tell them how to, and we would bring somebody for the female. And my wife would do a lot of that and teach them how to dress properly. And it, it, Cedric, Oba, uh, 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 what's Cedric's last name? I can't remember. Cedric's his first name. But anyways, an offensive tackle for the Cincinnati Bengals. I'll think of it in a second. Um, that's what happens when you get to be my age. Uh, <laughs> I tell people I have met a ton of people and I have a Rolodex in my head and there's a ton of people in that Rolodex. Unfortunately, when I get older, the Rolodex goes through a little bit slower. What <laughs> Cedric Oboye. So anyway, so, so we sat down and I happened to work with one of the, I happened to work with Cedric, but we had a tie tying contest because when you deal with young people, you got to deal with the competitiveness. And so we had a tie yeah. tying contest. And so there were like five male athletes from different sports. Well, I was, Cedric was my, 
who I was trying to teach how to tie a tie. And so we we had a limited amount of time. We're in front of all of the the the, the, the junior male athletes. And so here I'm trying to teach them how to tie a tie. And so the other, so then we had a clock, a stopwatch. And so we had a clock on them and, and they all had to tie their tie within a certain amount of time. And if you, and a lot of them never tied a tie before, but we were trying to help them for later on in life. Well, Cedric won the contest. He won it. And I found this out later on. He was so proud that he had won the tie tying contest. Here's a football player, offensive lineman. Well, he went out and was bragging to the offensive lineman that he won the tie-tying contest. <laughs> so the point was, the point is, we, we left an indelible mark with him and some of the things that he had to do to be successful. Well, we also, we taught him how to um, eat properly. And, uh, you know, we would have the fall sports in the springtime and the spring sports in the fall time, but we would make it mandatory because of in my some of my experiences that I told him. Well, one year, Steve Spurrier was our football coach. And one year we had the coaches, we had uh, Steve and his wife, Jerry, and then we had another head coach and his wife sitting at a table in front of all the student athletes. Well, and we tried to teach them how to eat properly. And a lot of them didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't know. So when you go on a job interview, you know, you don't want to eat like a slob because you might losing the job. So what we ended up doing was, so I'll never forget that Steve on, Steve on his own dropped a roll on the floor underneath the, the um, table that he was, that he was eating on and he got on his hands and knees and crawled to get it. Well, it was funny. I mean, the athletes just went, just laughed. I mean, here you got the head of Steve Sprayer on his hand, all four, trying, grabbing the roll and we're trying to teach him how not to do it, how not to do these kind of things. But the point, the point we got across him in a fun way was, these are things that you don't need to do. And for example, and I use this example, I hired, I mean, I interviewed a coach for the head basketball school, one of the coaches that I, one of the schools I was at at the time. And he showed up for the interview with no socks on chewing gum. Well, I mean, okay. So today maybe people don't understand it, but if you're going to, if that was not the proper thing to do as far as how to dress appropriately. So if he's making that kind of decision with me, what kind of decisions he's going to make later on in life? Well, so we, and so what I did was this young man, I went to his head coach. He was assistant coach at the time. I went to his head coach and told him what happened. Well, the coach that went through brought, that didn't have socks on was chewing gum. And I was trying to illustrate a point to the student athletes. He ended up writing me a letter. He wrote me a letter of apology. And, but so he learned, but anyway, he ended up becoming a SEC head basketball coach. So the, so I try to tell that to the kids. I mean, it's, I try to tell that to them. We try to teach them those kind of things. And in the first year, the first year we try to teach them, you know, transitioning from like Johnny's situation. He played in front of 500 people, maybe in high school. And now he's playing in front of 10 million. So what we try to do is help them make the transition. And we had former athletes, we have a panel discussion, former athletes come up and talk and all those kind of to help them. And then the last year we talked about how to uh, write resumes and I would bring in people, for example, I brought in a, the general, the commanding general for Jackson and talked about leadership to our kids. And then another time I, I brought in uh, the guy that was ahead of M4. Well, M4 had 9,000 people. He was a former track athlete at South Carolina, and he was an NCAA champion. So the kids could relate to him. So anyway, so he talked about what was important in interviewing for a job. So I try to do these kind of things 
the former president of Shell organization, was an A&M graduate. I brought him in to teach our administrators, you know, about leadership. So you tried to help, you tried, you know, you can't, they're not the finished product. So what you've got to be able to do is help them as they begin to grow and mature in their lives. So when they springboard out of college, then they can be successful in whatever they do. Yeah. You know, Eric, with where we are today and, and sports trying to do what they can to continue to compete and bring fans in at a limited basis, you know, and then just your historical perspective on decades and decades in the seat, it's become such a big business. It's such, it's a, it's an operating number that's bigger than a lot of companies, right? You talk about college? Correct. Or all well, college athletics? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's stay on college for a second. I mean, with all the challenges that are out there now, like what would you say to the ADs of today, how they navigate through the next, this, the rest of this season, next season and going forward? I tell them they probably ought to go get a lobotomy. <laughs> no, I, no I, I, you know, I feel for them. I think this is the most difficult time to be an athletic director. And I think there's three reasons why. Number one is COVID and the financial impact. And we haven't seen the end of it. And maybe there's some positives. Maybe there can be a reset button and maybe we can bring things, real things back a little bit. Um, but COVID, I mean, you, you, like CCU, for example, is going to be hit substantially because of not being able to bring the revenue. And now being a private school, the school may be able to help underwrite them and make the transition. But you talk about public schools, the state universities are really being hit financially. So how are they going to cope with it? Well, it's a game changer in my opinion. And it's something that's probably going to hang with us for several years. Now, college football is going to be important and it's going to stay important. Now, the amount of level of interest from fans standpoint, they're staying home and they're watching on TV. You may see a little bit of a drop off there, but I think college football is here. will weather the te- weather the test of time, but it might be configured a little bit differently than what it is today. Uh, and they have to cope. So if you have X amount of dollars and those X amount of dollars run out, what are you going to do? I mean, you see schools around the country are dropping sports. You see yeah. schools in the country are uh, furloughing people. You see people are taking pay cuts all the way. They're having to cope. Uh, quite frankly, some of this might be healthy in the long term for college athletics that because the spending has just gotten outrageous. And, you know, the amount of money that you're paying for coaches, say what you want, but I think it's, and what happens is it, which is going to springboard into the next thing is the empowerment of the student athletes. And they see a coach is making $10 million a year or $7 million a year and off of their backs. And they, they get a scholarship. I've heard the rationalization. I've been involved with it. I know it's a little bit different than propaganda that's coming out, but having been immersed in it for so many years that the, the student athletes are begin the families are beginning to see it. And, it, you know, why isn't there a little bit more of a balance? And you're getting defensive coordinators that are making two and a half million dollars, three million dollars. And I don't begrudge any of the coaches. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's the way our country was based. But the, the, after the impact it's having and the kickback on it is what's happening to your student athletes, what's happening to they, they feel they're, they drawn the short straw. And so that's why you're going to see the empowerment of student athletes. That's why you're seeing some things that could happen that could have a dramatic impact on their 
their feelings and their say so. And yeah. they're going to be more of a factor in the future than they have been in the past. And they feel empowered about it. And some of it's rightfully so. And you, you, um, you look at college athletics and, you know, there's old saying, follow the money, you know, money corrupts. The money has just gotten so big in college athletics that there needs to be a little bit of an adjustment period. And I think that would be healthy for college athletics if, if that takes place. So there's a lot of things, there are a lot of things that are going on. And then the last thing is the first, the first two things is COVID and the, the, the devastation financially, and then the empowerment of the student athletes. And then the last thing is, last thing is name, image, and likeness. And that's something that's, that's in the pipeline. And where it all comes out, I don't really know, but it's, you, you're now having government intervention. They're seeing the, the discrepancy between what some of the coaches are making and, and how much money is being generated and what the student athletes are getting. So now name, image, and likeness, it, a lot depends on the, in college athletics, it's sort of to a certain extent, like the wild, wild west, the recruiting and everything else. I mean, you, you talk to people that are totally immersed in it. This, make, this might make it more difficult, depends on the rules and the stipulations, but it's going to allow student athletes to generate re- income for themselves. So, you know, how do you control that? I don't know. So you have a coach of an SEC school comes up and says, I got, you know, we got, we got 15 car dealerships. And, you know, are they going to be this? They're going to be a little more discreet than this, but they got 15 car dealerships. And one of the dealerships would like you to be represent them. And so they pay them X dollars. Well, <laughs> how are you going to deal with it when, say, that guy's a quarterback, Trevor Lawrence at Clemson, everybody knows Trevor Lawrence, but what if you're the offensive guard that's really makes a huge impact on Trevor Lawrence, the, the quarterback at Clemson? Yeah, what's, how about all come out in the wash? I have no idea, but the pressure points are there and something's going to come out, something's going to come in the pipe, it's going to come out of the pipeline and it's really going to change the dynamics of, of what college athletics is today. Mm-hmm. Never a dull moment. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned um, when we were briefing earlier this week that I thought was interesting. You know, there is a, a definite similarity between an athletic director and a CEO, but an athletic director always has that fan base in the media to deal with. Can you kind of talk about how you navigated that and what's that going to look like in the future? Well, well, I, I told uh, my brother is the CEO of a company, and we would talk a lot of times about, you know, I'm curious to how he runs his business and all those kind of things, because maybe there's something he does that I could help me. The bottom line and all that, the difference between the challenges that he went through and the challenges I went through, there's a lot of similarities business-wise. But the biggest separator was the visibility. And so everybody, I, you know, I made decisions based on the facts I knew at that time, not six months later, not a year later. I made decisions based on facts, but you have to deal with the media. You have to factor into the media uh, of how they're going to deal with it. And it's gotten a lot worse today than when it was. And it was, I understand that there's a term that you've heard, the fake media. And to a certain extent, I dealt with that. I dealt with it firsthand that the media, some of them are really trusted and some of them had no scruples whatsoever. That's just the reality of it. So I understand what's, and I look at some of the things that are going on from a national standpoint with a jaundice eye. 
because of my personal experiences. So, you know, you to deal with the media is a, is a, is a challenge. And I, and some of the media will probably tell you, I was very, I kept my cards close to my chest. I was very guarded because I always felt as an athletic director, the athletic directors today are totally different. They're out there, they're tweeting, they're instant. They're always, they're right there in the middle of a lot of the visibility was taking place. They want to be in the middle of it. I was a little bit on the other side. I always felt that if athletic director got his name in the paper, that's probably not good news. And, you know, and, and so I, so I, was I over, uh, was I over, I react to that? Probably so, but it's, but it changed. And, and I know at, at South Carolina, we, we met with administrators, a lot of the young people. We had probably about 50 people in the room. Well, after the meeting was over with, about 10 of them came up to me and wanted me to do a Twitter account. And so they set up a Twitter account for me. And when they left the room, I said, I ain't doing that. <laughs> and, I, and I never did, but it was a mistake on my part. I should, because there's so much, there's so much information out there. There's more today than it was back then. There's so much misinformation out there. This would have been able a way to combat some of that. But in my mind, I said, if I start having to do that, then I'll be on Twitter all the time, having to combat some of the information that's out there. So you know, the dealing with the media, and I've had at i I've had uh, some of the media just flat lie. And they say things that were not true. They attribute things that I said were not absolutely true. And I confronted them. I confronted them about it. And of course, what happened was once you confront them, then they're not your friend anymore. Not that they were your friend in the first place. So you have to, so you, you know, you have to have tough skin and, you know, so, so dealing with the media was a challenge. And like I said, I probably was over conservative with them. Maybe I should have been a little bit more open, but I just wasn't because I just felt, I just, through my own experience, there's some things that happened that I just didn't feel comfortable about. So, I mean, I can tell you a ton of stories. You know, I hired a coach at South Carolina, a very highly visible men's basketball coach, the media. I mean, I did everything to get them on the wrong track. And like I, you know, you have a number on the plane. We try to change the number on the, the private plane. I would park in the hangar. I would not let anybody know. I wouldn't tell anybody. I said there was no search committee and there was no search committee. I had an individual help me with it, but there was no search committee. He did a lot of the groundwork. And so the media I mean, it, it drove them crazy. And because, you know, the fans, well, what's going on? Who are they interviewing? And it's the media. If you throw enough against the wall, something's going to stick. And so, I mean, I was trying to recruit this particular coach. Well, we did a pretty good job because in the end, they didn't have a clue. And in the end, they thought the individual, when we had the press conference called, well, then they went to the, to the airport uh, in Columbia, and they were all out there waiting with their cameras, waiting for the person to walk off the plane. Well, there was no person because that person flew in Charlotte, and I went to pick them up. <laughs> and, and, so, and, and so the way, so what I'm trying to say, it's a game. That's the way I looked at it as a game. It's like you're playing chess, and I gotta, I, I gotta I, um, get after the king. I gotta uh, checkmate the king, and that's the way I looked at it. I looked at it a little bit as a game, and. Did I outwit them? What was a survival outwit or whatever the TV show, you know, outthink, outwit or, or, you know, to survive. And that's what you got to be able to do. And I didn't look at it as, a, oh, now when somebody would put, put story, put, uh, make stories up about who I was re recruiting or who I was talking to that were not, had 
I had no interest whatsoever, but they were putting them out there. That irritated me because they're, they're lying. They're not being truthful about it. And they said a source. Well, a source said this, a source. There was no source. I was the source. <laughs> right. And I tried to control the message that was going out. So all the things that we're, we're putting out there were not true. I mean, some of them may true. Like I said, something may stick against the wall uh, just based on luck. But, but the bottom line is, was it? And so when, I, I, so when we hired the guy, and I was so excited because we kept it. We did a good job of keeping it as confidential as we possibly could. So dealing with the media is a challenge. I had some people I really trusted, and I was very open with them. Some people I really did not trust, and I was very guarded. But I think the scruples, I think the ethics, I think the standards that the media operate today are so different than what they used to be. And I just don't think they're a part of the equation as much as they used to be. And that may be because of the pressure of getting it first and social media and all those kind of things. But I think, I think the AD has got a lot difficult, a lot more difficult job today than what they used to have. Well, I had. Well, I do want to ask one question that we may or may not have been fed uh, prior to this podcast, but um, (laughs) we've heard about a recurring annual nightmare. <laughs> what can you tell us about that? Well, I have two of them. One of them is that I didn't take a class I should have taken in North Carolina. So I'm going to have to go back and go to school and finish. I didn't really get a degree. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's one nightmare I had. You know, I, you know, I didn't want to have to go back and study. I didn't want to have to go back and take the class because I, you know, I just, it was a nightmare. And then I had a nightmare that I don't really want to say the school, but I had a nightmare that I'd have to go back to this particular school that I worked. And it was a very, <laughs> very difficult experience for me. And I had that nightmare. I had it once a year. Now it's fallen off a little bit, but I had that once a year. So I have had some nightmares from somebody that has maybe mentioned it to you about, and I don't know why it happens, but it ends up going back to those past experiences that weren't um, that had left an indelible mark with me. So in the, in the spirit too of the podcast, uh, we heard about your, your climb of Gray's peak. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was, that was one of the, I have a bucket list of things like I'm a biker and I bike, um, 20, you know, 40, 50 miles, 20 to 50 miles. And like one of my bucket lists was going over the Golden Gate Bridge on a bike. And I did that. One of my bucket lists, to climb a 14er and I did that with my son and that's one of the highlights of my life is to was it easy no and but and I was 60 years old when I did it and we probably crossed maybe 20 people and I'd say most all of them were in their their teens or their 20s I mean we crossed you know crossed all people I saw one guy in his 30s he was running up the mountain and but anyway we got to about 1500 feet from the top. And again, I'm 60 years old. We got 1500 feet from the top and it was getting to me. And my son comes up to me and says, he starts being a cheerleader. And I said, I don't want to hear, listen to you. I said, <laughs> Leave me alone. we know I the said, feeling. So, so I, I, from 1500 feet, all I said was right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. And I just focused on putting one foot in front of the other. Well, I got to the top and people don't understand. So this is 14,280 feet. So I got to the top and there's no McDonald's up there. 
And there's no park ranger saying, welcome to the top or a bathroom or anything like that. You just lay out on rocks. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, it was a great experience. I love doing it. And it'll be one of the best memories of my life. It's one of the best memories of my life to be able to tell and like to take that challenge with your son and to be together. He brought his German shepherd and to go through something like that. I'll never forget it. And it was a unique moment in my life. That is awesome. Eric, one of the, uh, the questions that we like to ask, and it's, uh, it's kind of become probably an unrealized passion of, about doing this is if, you know, you think about the medium of a podcast, like we're, we're capturing your story right now. It's, it's not a Twitter feed that disappears in the mix of Twitter feeds. This, this is a story that now people can go back and, and listen to and remember, you know, your journey along the way. And so there's that saying that it's not what you know, it's who you know. We reverse it around and say, you know, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So, and thinking about the people that are going to listen to this, your family, your son, what do you want people to know about you? Well, uh, you know, that's interesting. You're around here once. So if I had to look back over my career, I would stop and smell the roses. And and I would want people to do the same thing because you get on the fast track and you 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 know you're churning as fast as you can churn. But if I had to do it again, you know, I, I would like on a vacation, I would go on a I'd go on vacations more. I'd take more time with my family. Now the great thing about grandchildren, it gives you a second chance. Where with your children, and my wife did a marvelous job of raising our, our children. And I, I'm not that I wasn't there, you know, I helped coach their baseball team and their softball team and that kind of stuff, but I wasn't there as much as I should have been. So what I would say to somebody else is to try to, you know, is to try to enjoy it. Live in the moment, live, not in the past, not in the future, but live in the moment and enjoy, look, stop and smell the roses and, and to focus maybe a little bit different, differently than maybe the way, what you have in your job, because and this is what my wife told me, when it's all said and done, when I'm near the end, who's going to be there for me is going to be my family. It's not going to be all these other people and in life. And, and you begin to find out who your true friends are when you're through, when you're through with your professional career. And uh, so that's what I would try to, to just tell people, stop and smell the roses and, and to enjoy, enjoy, their, enjoy themselves. Don't get too far ahead of themselves. And, you know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I mean, there are other things, but that was the first thing that would jump out at me. That's perfect. Well said. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this great stuff with us. It's definitely a different podcast for us to have. You know, we've had a lot of folks on from the business world on and not saying this isn't the business world because clearly you learn uh, the roles you were in are, are very business in, in so many different respects. But we appreciate you sharing everything with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure, and, and um, I'm glad to be able to to visit with you. And um, you know, I, I say to, and I think I said this earlier to young people: be a sponge, and you know, listen to in your life, look around, and try to learn. Always learn. Always learn as as time. You're always learning. When you stop learning, you stop growing. And so, I it's been my pleasure to to visit with you all. And hopefully maybe there's a person out there that can benefit from one of the things I've said. Absolutely. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Or they can say, I'm thinking about getting in athletics, but I'm going to go get that lobotomy first. <laughs> <laughs>
No, I told that to a girl one time, a student athlete at A&M that came to me and asked me what was, you know, everybody's got a different perception of what being an athletic director really is. And she came to me and she wanted, what did it take to be an athletic director? How can the, the path that I took and all those kind of things? Well, I said, the first thing I said, you need to have a lobotomy. And she didn't know what that was. And so I, so I said, well, go ask your parents and what a lobotomy is. And, you, and then I went to and I explained to her, well, she went to her parents and asked a lobotomy and they laughed. And she came back to me and she was mad at me for, for saying that to her. But, the, <laughs> but I, I say that all in fun. When I, when I talk about that, it's a, it's a very challenging job. It's never been, it's never been boring. It's never been dull. Has it been over challenging? Probably. Uh, it's overstimulating probably, but it's been different. And, and I think different than the people in the, we're all different. Your job's different. The two of you have different jobs, different responsibilities and people in the, you know, whatever walk of life you, you have. And so you know, sometimes in athletics, we think, well, woe is, woe is me everybody's got problems. The key is to solve them. And, you know, how, you know, you have to solve your problems. And so that's what you try to do. Like I said earlier, the only thing is you're so visible, which makes a difference. If you work for an insurance company, obviously you have people that work for the company. If it's a, if it's a privately owned, you don't have shareholders stock, but if you're publicly traded, then you've got those people that you got to deal with. So, you know, everybody's got challenges. You just got to be able to try to, um, to, to take them head on. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.